morning, if you're in the building, or if you're online. That's better. Um, oh, that's very loud. Um, <laughs> this morning's Bible passage, um, which Irene read, um, comes from the beginning of the Gospel of John, and it continues the story that was begun earlier in the chapter, uh, the story of John the Baptist's ministry uh, and the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It's a story about telling and inviting. It's a story about hum obedient, humble service, uh, and one that points to the future and the significance of Jesus. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, take these words of mine that you would open our hearts to hear the truths uh, in your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, how do you like to relax? Um, perhaps finding 10 minutes to kick back, sit down with a cup of tea or coffee, find your favorite newspaper or magazine on your phone, or maybe, I know it's a bit old hat, but actually in paper, um, and have a read. Perhaps you like when you go to the hairdressers or the doctors sitting in the waiting room and picking up the, the magazines that you perhaps don't normally pick up and, and having a flick through and seeing what the latest gossip is, what's happening with your latest um, sports team or, or celebrity. Everybody seems to like a, a bit of gossip. I know that when I hear something about something that's happened to a family member, um, there's something in me that just wants me to, 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 to go and tell somebody else. Um, but it's not my news necessarily to give. I mean, you can't have failed to have noticed the uh, phenomenal amount of, of newsprint, um, TV, radio coverage that's been over the past couple of weeks about the Harry and Meghan Netflix um, programs and, and Harry's recent book. People love to know what's going on, um, particularly about the royal family. What's the juicy gossip? Now, gossip, of course, has a rather negative connotation. It's usually about something bad that something's done. Did you know what he's done, what, what she's done? Have you heard? But we also want to share things about which we're curious, things which excite us and things that we're passionate about. If we discover some new way of doing something, if um, I discover a new recipe or whatever, um, and it's great, I want to share it. Um, if I discover a new way of doing something, you know, some new computer program that makes my life easier, I want to tell somebody about it. Have you tried this? Um, we want to share the things that we discover. And this is what John's gospel as a whole is all about, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John tells us um, in chapter 20, he says this, he says, these things that he's written are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John was written so that we could come to know Jesus. It provides a space for us to encounter him in his full identity. So can I suggest that if we're going to, to gossip, let's gossip the Gospel. Now, coming back to um, the reading, the Jews were very curious about John the Baptist. It seems like everyone was going out to the desert to see this, this new religious zealot, this religious teacher, who looked rather like an Old Testament prophet, 
preaching repentance and baptizing with water as a symbol of being cleansed. You know, perhaps they were saying, have you heard? There's a new teacher in town. Well, actually out of town, way down by the River Jordan. He sounds a bit different to your regular rabbi. Apparently his clothes are made of camel's hair. And he only eats locusts and wild honey. It's a bit weird, but something's happening. Should we go? Should we see? Let's see for ourselves. And people were coming from around the Jordan, from across Judea, and even from Jerusalem itself. People including Jesus. Now, the Gospel of John is a gripping and a very carefully crafted story. It begins with the, the great poetic prologue in, 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 in the beginning of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Um, which in our Anglican liturgy we, we hear for the first time on Christmas Day. And it's in the prologue that John the Baptist first appears. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And then in the passage immediately prior to, the, uh, to today's reading, John uh, the Baptist is interrogated by some of the Jewish religious leaders who've been sent down from Jerusalem. He's asked who he is and why is he baptizing? And he makes it very clear to them that he is not the Messiah, nor is he Elijah, and nor is he the prophet who Moses said would come. He's pointing to somebody else. And the religious leaders demand an answer from him. So John, very sensibly, quotes Scripture. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, John the Baptist declares that he is the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, makes straight the way for the Lord. John also says that they, the, the religious leaders, don't know the Messiah, the one who is to come. He says, among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to tie. So if this scene was being dramatized, we should perhaps here have a, have a drum roll from Graham on the, on the box. Um, because we're reminded here of what we're told in the prologue, that Jesus came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. It's at this point that John the Baptist and Jesus meet. And the irony is, of course, that they're cousins, John the Baptist and Jesus. So they presumably knew each other, they presumably met at some point. But like the religious leaders, John the Baptist had no idea who Jesus, his cousin, really was. That is, until the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus' identity to John. John says, doesn't he, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me, God, to baptize with water, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And John sees Jesus coming towards him, and he says this, he says, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how our reading started. Now, if you've grown up in church, 
or been coming for a while. Uh, and listen to the prayers and the liturgy of the Eucharist, you'll probably be very familiar with the phrase, Lamb of God. It's almost Christian jargon. We say it almost without thinking, and we think of Jesus. In the celebration of communion, we say, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are those who are called to his supper. There's a prayer called the Gloria, where we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God. And in the prayer known as the Agnus Dei, we say, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. And yet, the first chapter of the Gospel of John is the only place in the entire Bible where this phrase is used. No Old Testament prophet ever referred to the Messiah as the Lamb of God, nor does any other New Testament writer. Even in the book of Revelation, where John mentions the image of the Lamb, um, the exact phrase, the Lamb of God, isn't used. And it's strange language seems to be a phrase that John the Baptist came up with, presumably under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit. So what would those who were listening to John have, have thought? What um, ideas would, would that phrase have conjured up for them? You know, the Jewish people had long been waiting their Messiah, but the expectation was that the Messiah would be a, a king, a warrior, a hero who would restore Israel to its former glory, who would kick out the occupying Romans and set them free. So calling Jesus a lamb would hardly have conjured up that kind of idea of a Messiah. It probably just seemed downright weird. Now, calling Jesus a lamb could be understood in a few ways. Um, lambs are often seen as a symbol of gentleness and meekness and vulnerability. But lambs were also used for sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if John meant Jesus was meek and mild, calling Jesus a lamb could have been a nice thing to say. But it wasn't describing the anticipated Messiah. Maybe John was accusing Jesus of being just a little bit dumb, a bit ineffectual, um, you know, someone easy to gang up upon. It's not a phrase that's indicating that Jesus is going to achieve very much. You know, after all, it's generally not the, the nice guys who get to prominence uh, in this world. And sacrificial lambs, well, we know where they end up. So it does make you wonder what the disciples were thinking when they chose to follow Jesus, this new rabbi. Was Jesus going places or was he going nowhere? And yet John the Baptist adds the phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so now we have the image of the Lamb and the concept of sin in the same sentence. But since the only traditional connection between lambs and sin had always involved the death of the hapless lamb, John is clearly introducing a very dark theme and pointing to the future cross. This isn't the kind of thing you'd say about someone who was on his way to the top of the world's heap. This isn't how you describe a celebrity on um, a red carpet um, or a politician who is um, going to the palace 
um, to be appointed prime minister by the king. John could just as easily have said, behold the one who is going down the tubes, behold the loser, the victim, the dead man walking. So it must have sound really, sounded really odd to those first listeners. But as we see in today's reading, John repeats the phrase the very next day when Jesus returns. So it's not some silly slip of the tongue on John's part. This is central to who Jesus is. And so for someone who knew their Bible and knew their history, that phrase would have set fireworks off in their head because lambs were deeply significant to the nation of Israel. In their history, God, if we remember reading back into Genesis, God had provided a lamb miraculously for Abraham, the father of the nation, to sacrifice on that mountain in the place of his son Isaac. And then, perhaps most importantly of all, there is the foundational story about Israel in the Old Testament, the, the exodus from e Egypt. The Jews escaped from slavery in Egypt, and that escape started, as you may remember, with ten plagues that God sent on Egypt and Pharaoh, ending with the death of every firstborn male. Except that God had instructed Moses to tell the Israelites to slaughter a lamb, a lamb without defect, and to put some of its blood on the door frames of the Israelite houses, so that when um, the plague on the firstborn came, God would pass over the Israelites' house, houses and save the firstborn of Israel. And then there's the prophet Isaiah in his song of the suffering servant in, in chapter 53. He prophesied about the Messiah, speaking of one who was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So I mentioned um, red carpets a few moments ago. And many of us like to see our favorite film star or TV star walking up the red carpet to a, whatever award ceremony uh, it is. And it, um, it certainly creates a media frenzy with the, the paparazzi clicking their cameras and shouting questions at the, at the celebrities. It's quite a fevered atmosphere, uh, but one that's in complete contrast to, to what we see in this interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus, I would argue, is the most significant person who has ever graced this planet. The celebrity of celebrities, if you like. But our reading makes clear that, that without some extra divine help, you'd hardly have been able to pick Jesus out of the crowd. Even John the Baptist has admitted that he didn't know him. If God hadn't let him see the Spirit descending on Jesus, he wouldn't have known who Jesus of Nazareth really was. And on that second day, when Jesus goes down to the Jordan, John the Baptist, we're told, has two disciples with him, one of whom is Andrew, brother of Simon Peter. And when they hear John say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they must recall that only yesterday John had said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John the Baptist's ministry 
he knew was to be superseded by this new teacher. John the Baptist's ministry must decrease and Jesus's would increase. So what does Andrew and his friend do? They abandon John. They follow Jesus. And Jesus directly addresses Andrew, um, and he, he asks them, um, what do you seek? Jesus is always asking really pointed and direct questions in John's gospel. And he invites the two of them to come and see. And so they hang out with Jesus. And that leads to a deep, intimate encounter with him. You know, the meaning of the word in the, in the original language in, in the New Testament here, um, for stay means to abide, to, to, to rest. It's, it's about taking time. It's a slow process. Um, it's about relationship and interconnection. It's a word that John uses a lot uh, in his gospel, abiding with Jesus. It's the same word that was used um, when John the Baptist saw the Spirit rest on him. The Spirit abided on Jesus in the form of the dove. So the implication is that as we abide with Jesus, as Andrew and his friend, his unnamed friend, abided with Jesus, there began a long-lasting, deep, meaningful relationship. That, that their faith was no longer derivative. It wasn't a, somebody else's faith. It wasn't a, a second-hand faith. It's now based on their own relationship with Jesus. And, and so the pattern goes on in John's Gospel, as we see in verse 41. Andrew has been found by Jesus, so what does he do? He goes, he invites Peter, his brother, Simon, to encounter Jesus for himself. And an intimate encounter follows for Simon. And in the passage right after today's reading, Philip becomes a follower of Jesus. And what does he do? He goes to his friend Nathaniel. And what does he say? Come and see. And later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, we have the story of the Samaritan woman. She does the same thing. She hangs out. She engages Jesus in conversation. And her identity, his identity is revealed to her. And as that happens, she's flooded with life and the spirit that flows from Jesus. And she goes back to her village and she says, what does she say? Come and see. Come and see a man who's told me everything um, about me. And so they too come and hang out with Jesus. And they have a direct revelation of their own, which leads them, the villagers, to testify. It's no longer because of what the woman said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is truly the saviour of the world. It's interesting that in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's Jesus who calls the disciples from their fishing boats to follow him. But here in the Gospel of John, they come to Jesus as a result of John the Baptist's witness, rather than in response to, to Jesus' call. But the pattern of witnessing um, that occurs in these verses is that one of the disciples, Andrew, witnesses to his brother Simon Peter, who of course we know becomes a key figure in the gospel story. The ripples move ever outward, and only God can predict how far they will reach. And Andrew has no particularly grand vision 
or ministry. He seems a bit like a, a, a bit player in the whole drama of the New Testament. There's no record of him establishing a, a mission in a foreign land like St. Thomas, or preaching in the temple like, like Peter did later, or preaching in the synagogues around the Roman Empire like Paul and Barnabas. No, Andrew only goes to his brother. But that outreach, that witness of Jesus, has profound consequences for the future of the church and the kingdom of God. And while Andrew is not recorded as achieving any great stature among the apostles, it's he who brings people to Jesus on three occasions. The first is bringing Simon Peter. Later, he brings a boy with five loaves and two fishes. And if you've been in the church a while, know your Bible, you'll know what happens next. And then he brought a group of Greeks who wanted to meet Jesus. You know, there's an old saying that goes, you can accomplish anything if you don't care who gets the credit. Andrew was someone who'd been deeply changed and transformed by Jesus, who wanted to share, wanted to testify, who wanted to invite people to come and meet Jesus. From the very beginning, Jesus gathered around him the most ordinary of people, people like Andrew, ordinary people who possessed only ordinary gifts, people like me and you. And Jesus invites us today to come to him, to abide with him, to learn from him, to find eternal life here and now so that we can live our lives here and now in the fullness of life that he gives us through the Spirit, to be free to be the people that God has made us to be. You're here this morning, I assume, because God has impacted your life, changed your life, entered your life in some way. You're not the person you once were because of Jesus. And each of you have a story to tell, a unique story that only you can tell about Jesus. So we in turn are to be like John the Baptist. We are to be witnesses to Jesus. And like Andrew, to invite our family and our friends, our colleagues and our acquaintances to come and see. And as I said at the beginning of the talk, if we're going to gossip, let's gossip the gospel. So, at the start of this year, can I challenge each of you, as I challenge myself, to make a list of, say, four people who you know, who don't yet know Jesus, and make a commitment to pray for them every day, and then to pray for an opportunity in which you can perfectly naturally share your story, tell them about Jesus and what he has done for you, what he means for you. Pray for them to ask that question. Why do you go to church? Why do you believe in Jesus? A question that you can answer. So who will you tell your story to? Who will you invite to church or connect group or to the, to the Alpha um, course? Because everyone needs to discover for themselves who Jesus is. They need to discover what we have found, the freedom, the love, the acceptance in Jesus. Perhaps that sounds all a bit scary for some of us who are introverts, um, but we can all have a conversation 
We all have friends. We all communicate in different ways. And God knows that, and God loves that. And that's the wonder of the church, that we are all so different, yet united in Christ. So, let me conclude with a Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.